Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, welcome to the second to last Remembering the Faithful class. This has been an absolute joy for me to sit in and to, 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 to take this class along with you, with the other brothers. I'm really thankful for Jeremy and for Ryan, for Colby and for the work they've put in. Um, it's been fun, hasn't it? I've, I've really enjoyed it. If you're visiting for the first time, uh, we're on the tail end of a class called Remembering the Faithful. And uh, the gist of the class, um, the gist of the class is really, it's really from Hebrews chapter 13. Um, the point of the class is we're, we have this great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And so Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us to remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. This is Hebrews 13, 6. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And then we're told, and imitate their faith. And so, and, the, and again, the theological basis of that command is grounded in the next clause. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what we're doing in this class is we're, it's kind of like church history, but it's more fun. We're doing biography. We're doing biography as a way to fix our eyes on one person and see how their life met Jesus, how Jesus changed their lives, and what can we learn from this, the, these, these, these folks that we're considering? How can we follow Jesus better today because of, of what they did? And as I said all the way through this class, none of the people that we're looking at are perfect. In fact, they all had serious flaws, serious deficiencies, serious sins. And I can, I can tell you, um, of all the people that we have studied this morning, I have probably, not probably, delete that word, I have more theological differences with uh, this guy right here than anybody else we've studied in this class. And yet, and yet, and yet, we're doing this class in large measure because of C.S. Lewis. And he has had, I would say, as great of an influence on me as any other writer I've ever read. But it may not be for the reasons you're thinking. But before I talk about his influence briefly on my life, I'd love to know, anybody here read C.S. Lewis, impacted by C.S. Lewis? Anybody, anybody, raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. It's, okay, so a lot. Um, anybody willing to share and check this out, concisely <laughs> and Christ-centeredly, briefly, way, 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 Lewis, what you read that impacted you and what was significant about it? Yes, ma'am. Um, right after my husband passed away, the movie The Shadowlands came yeah. out. And so I watched that. And then also I read the book on grief. And grief Observed. Grief Observed. And, yeah. and it really, really helped me. Praise God. So A Grief Observed. Yeah. He wrote that after his wife, Joy, passed away from cancer. Any other ways that Lewis has helped? Now, I saw a lot of hands, so don't get chicken now. All the way to the back. There you go. So as a kid, she read the Chronicles. Raise your hand if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay. Raise your hand if you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, you need to leave now. <laughs> just leave. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, she read the Chronicles of Narnia and, and she learned what an allegory is 
And uh, I think many of us probably had that experience. That, that may be your gateway into Narnia was probably, your, many of us, your gateway into Lewis, right? Yes, yes. What else? Any, any other? Yes, Cliff. Amen. So what Cliff is sharing is a quote from a sermon called Weight of Glory that talks about how that it's not that, that we're finding joy is the problem, is that we're putting our joy in the wrong thing, that there's actually an infinite joy offered to us. We'll come to that quote in a minute. That's great. Disordered loves is a, is a great lesson from Lewis. Other, 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 other thoughts, other testimonies. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, yes. So if anybody ever heard of the book, Mere Christianity? So Mere Christianity, he, he didn't write this book. He didn't sit down in his, in his study and say, I'm gonna write a book on Mere Christianity. He was asked by the BBC to write some talks that would, that would be aired over the radio about what, what the point of Christianity is so that soldiers on the front lines of World War II could find hope in Christ. So he, was, he, he said, he was asked, write a series of talks, radio talks to deliver so that you could share the gospel basically to soldiers on the front lines. And that's where we get your Christianity. What else? Yes, sir, Ryan. Yes, in a ring. Yes, so that's an essay called The Inner Ring. It's profoundly helpful, especially when you've got a kids going to college and there's a tendency to, to have a click and leave other people out. Uh, that's a, it's, it's, a great, it's a great meditation. Yes, anything else? Yes, Olivia. Yes, so anybody read Screw Tape Letters? Screw Tape Letters? If you don't know about this, it's a group, it's a series of letters written from a younger demon to a chief demon <laughs> to teach you about temptation. It, it is, I, I, it might be the best book you ever wrote in terms of profound. It's, it's, it's amazing. Wonderful reading, wonderful meditation. Anything else? Okay, so I, I just want to pause and just stop for a minute. Think about this. Just in the, the testimonies that were just given, did you notice sermons, essays, theology, fan, fantasy children's stories? That's quite the repertoire, right? <laughs> okay, so that, that's part of what makes Lewis so engaging, okay? So let me, let me give you a few caveats real quick. The more I read Lewis, um, and I'll tell you a story really quickly. When I was in, uh, I did not like reading growing up. Uh, I hated reading. In fact, I got sent to the principal's office in the fifth grade because they found out, my teacher found out I had used the same book report three years in a row. 
It was a great book report, though. It was on Abner Doubleday, the inventor of baseball, and it was a great book report. I tried to pawn that off for third years in a row, and then they were talking in the teacher's lounge, and they said, wait a second, Roark did what? And I got sent to Mr. Mr. Lane and got in trouble. So I was, I was in a world of hurt because I didn't have any, I had only read one book, right? So I'm like sitting there, what book am I going to read for sixth grade? And in fifth grade, this guy got up to do a presentation, uh, a, a book report, and he did a diorama. Anybody know what a diorama is? You young people, if you don't know what dioramas are, just talk to the old folks. We'll, we'll tell you what a diorama is. He got up and did a diorama, and he started talking. Chris Sokol was his name. He, he started talking about magical wardrobe and about a, a lion king and an evil white witch and this magical land where it's always winter and never what? Christmas. And these kids who were away from their parents and they, 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 they were able to get into that land. And, and, and I mean, by the end of the presentation, I'm like, that sounds a lot better than Admiral Doubleday. And then the next week, y'all remember the book bus, the book fair? That, that, y'all remember this? It's like the best time of the year, right? The book bus would show up. And I had a little bit of money because I mowed yards. And I went in and I bought this set of the Chronicles of Narnia. That was 33 years ago. I've read Lewis every year since. And here's the funny thing. Years later, when someone shared the gospel with me, God saved me, and I was reading, rereading Narnia, as I'm apt to do. And for the first time, I thought, wait a second, Aslan is Jesus. <laughs> now, most people get that the first time. I'd read it for years. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait a second. And I can't help but wonder, brethren, that when I meet the Lord face to face and he gives me all the particularities of how he brought me to himself, if it wasn't, if it wasn't this book that I got in fifth grade that played a role in recognizing the Lion King before I met him. And so I don't agree with Lewis's view of scripture. He holds to the authority of scripture. He doesn't hold to the inerrancy of scripture. I, I, don't, I don't like the way that Lewis talks about the particularities of the Protestant Reformation early in his life. He changes some of his views later in his life. I don't like the way he talks about the Reformers. I don't like the way he talks about, at least holds out hope, that imperfection, imperfect pictures of Christ revealed in other religions might lead people to Christ. I don't like that. I don't agree with that, but, but I can honestly say that Lewis does things as you spend time reading him, that at least for me, has made my love of God's word and its perfection and errancy. He has strengthened my views. So I, I, I just, I want to, I want to pay a debt to him this morning because one of the gifts that he gave me was a love for reading. I am I am who I am today in large measure because this man, by God's grace, ignited in me a love for the English language and a love for words and a love for literature that I cannot, I, it's incalculable. I can't, I can't put into words how much of an impact he's had on me. So 
C.S. Lewis, not someone you're gonna go to to find biblical content for your Bible study. No, not that. Not someone to help you grow in the particularities of Reformation doctrine. That's not why you go to him for that. But what do you go to him for? You go to him for joy. You go to him to find out where does the joy come from. And so to that end, open your Bibles. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. You can just look at one verse. Matthew 13, 44. You know the context. Jesus is giving teaching on the parables of the kingdom. And Jesus says this about the kingdom of God. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like, oops, better color, orange, like a treasure. And it's hidden in a field which a man found and covered up or hid again. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Read it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up or hid again. Then in, or other translations, because of, because of his joy, joy of finding that treasure, he goes and does what? Sells everything he has and buys that field. Now, I want you to imagine, just stop for a minute. I want you to just rehearse, just think for a minute. I want you to catalog in your mind everything you own. What could be so joyous? What treasure could be so great that you would gladly part with everything you have to get that treasure? Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like that. In other words, the joy of everything you own, the pleasure that everything you own brings to you cannot even compare to the joy that God gives in the kingdom. If you get, I had, I had about, I've done, in my head, I've done like five different talks this week about C.S. Lewis. I, we could do a whole talk on his, the, his understanding of the particularities of joy. You could do a whole talk on the glory and honor of Narnia kings and queens. You could do a whole talk on the dangers of the technological atheism that we're facing today. All of that you could get from Lewis. But I want, you to, I want, us, I want us to think about him through this lens of joy and I've scrapped the rest of my talk, and then I'm going to just tell you stories about Aslan and Narnia. <laughs> that, that's what I decided to do at the end of the day, okay? So it's going to be story time with Uncle Nick here in about 10 minutes, all right? And if you don't like this, if it's an unmitigated disaster, I'm, I'm sorry now. But I just, I want to do something fun, okay? Speaking of the, the quote that Cliff mentioned, listen to this. This is beautiful. If we can, this is Lewis. If we consider the, unblu the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when what? Infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that beautiful? We're offered a holiday at the sea. And yet, like children, ignorant children, we would rather play in the mud. And so, in other words, his inference is, it's not that your joys and your, your it's not that your joys and your longings, right, are too small, they're too weak. In other words, but he says in another way, he says this, this is in a surprised by joy, right? In a sense, the central story of my life, Lewis writes, is about nothing else. It's all about this, joy. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. It's a capital J. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever exchange it for all the pleasures of the world. So let me put it this way. For Lewis, joy with the capital J wasn't the point. It was the pointer. In other words, his experience and taste of joy in this life taught him that, that, it, what, that, that it was actually pointing to something beyond this life that only God could satisfy. In other words, those experiences of joy, we've all tasted it. You've, you've experienced that fleeting pleasure when you're watching a sunset over the Grand Canyon. Or when you, get, when you, when you witness a wedding yesterday. And that the solemnity and the joy on the faces of the bride and groom when they turn around. And you see that and you, and you say, yes, that's it. When, when, when Tennessee beats Alabama, I could go on and on. <laughs> Fleeting. <laughs> Fleeting joy. We've all experienced it. But it's fleeting, right? And you think, where is that coming from? And for Lewis, it was a signpost. This is the way, I didn't put it in your notes because I, I remembered this this morning. So sorry. But this is what he says at the end of uh, Surprised by Joy. He says this. He says, when we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it cries, look, the whole party gathers around and stares. But when we have found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up. But we shall not stop and stare or not much. Not on this road. Though their pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold, we would be at Jerusalem. You see, Lewis is saying it's not the signposts, it's what they point to, namely joy in God. So let me tell you a little bit about Lewis, why we should give a rip about him. And then I'm going to tell you his testimony. 
I'm gonna draw two quick applications and then it'll be story time in Narnia, okay? Most of you know who he is. If you don't know, he was not a pastor. He was not a theologian. He was a trained academic in literature, in medieval and Renaissance literature. But he was also a Christian and he was one of the most influential Christian apologists of the 20th century. He published dozens of books in lots of different genres. Um, here he is. He was on the cover of Time Magazine in 1947. And you can't read this right here, but here was Time Magazine. Does anybody read Time Magazine? I don't even know if it's around. But here's what Time Magazine said about C.S. Lewis in 1947. This is great. Oxford C.S. Lewis, his heresy, Christianity. <laughs> great. He, oh, by the way, uh, Lewis called the article after he read it rubbish. <laughs> anyway, we're going to keep going. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia, 100 million copies, over 100 million copies in 40 languages. Incredible. Um, I love one, one, one way someone put it is everything he touched had his kind of magic about it. Interesting. Um, here, here's a, a, a guy, Peter Kreeft, who's a professor at Boston College. He said this. Just notice the breadth of Lewis. He produced some first quality works of literary history, of literary criticism, theology, philosophy, autobiography, biblical studies, historical philology. That's the study of language. Um, fantasy, science fiction, letters, poems, sermons, formal and informal essays, a historical novel, a spiritual diary, religious allegory, short stories, and children's novels. One person did this. And then he says this. C.S. Lewis was not a man. He was a world. Um, here are some of the books uh, that he's, he wrote that are really, really popular. Those are the two that came up on Amazon. I did some research last night, Amazon.com. Check it out. And, uh, and this is what Lewis said. So given all that he wrote, all of the output, right? People don't realize all the, Nar the Narnia book sales. Do you all know where, where, the, where the proceeds went? Anybody know? Went to charity. He set it up so he'd go to, to care for orphans. All that literary output. C.S. Lewis, what do you think about all that? Quote, the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. The glory of God is the real business of life. Beautiful. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about his biography. Now, unfortunately, he was born with the name Clive Staples Lewis. Great, Scott. What were his parents doing? There's a guy at my church uh, back, back in Virginia whose last name was Staples, and I was teaching on Lewis one time. And I was like, imagine being named Staples. And I looked over at him, and he was just like, believe me, I don't have to imagine it, right? He was born on November 29, 1898. He was from Northern Ireland. He's from Belfast. You can go online and hear lectures of him talk. We have a few recordings of his voice. He sounds like a jovial leprechaun. <laughs> when in boarding school, when it, he, now real quick story, when he was eight years old, eight or nine, his mother got really sick and uh, she died of cancer. And it, 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 impacted him greatly. His dad was never the same. 
his dad was aloof, distant, was really out of the picture the rest of his life. So there was an absence of a mother and an absence of a dad in the most formative period of his life. So when he goes to boarding school, he meets a guy, a guy named William Kirkpatrick. If you read Lewis, you know he called him the Great Knock, was his nickname for him, who was the avowed atheist. And uh, his atheism had a massive impact on Lewis. And so by, by, by his teenage years, Lewis was a convinced rationalist, a convinced atheist by 17. He goes into the army, World War I, fights in World War I, he gets wounded. People died in the trenches with him, and that had a dramatic impact on his life. Um, the trauma of the war was intense. Shrapnel blew up next to him, killed some guys near him, and he had shrapnel in his body until he died, all the way to his death. But he comes home, he goes to Oxford. Now, he didn't just get one first, uh, first class honor at Oxford. He didn't just get two, he got three. And as best I can tell, that hasn't been done that often. Three firsts, classics, humanities, English lit. So he starts teaching as a fellow at Oxford and he stays there a long time until the end of his, end of his teaching career when he ends up getting a, a similar job, a higher job at Cambridge. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it was during this period at Oxford where he meets a guy, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, y'all heard of him? And uh, it was through his persistent witness over the course of years, Lewis and others, uh, other friends uh, besides Tolkien, influenced Lewis. And on October 31st, 1931, Lewis had gone from atheism all the way through many, almost like Augustine, through many different philosophical beliefs um, to deism, or, or I'm sorry, to, to, to theism, and then eventually to Christianity. He professed faith in Christ. Let me, let me tell you the real, in his own words what happened. I think this is awesome. This is why I, one of the reasons I believe in sovereign grace. He said this, when, I, when we, is he and his brother, warning, when we set out, I did not believe, this is going to the zoo. We did not, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God. So when he left to go to the zoo, he didn't believe it. But when we reached the zoo, I did. <laughs> He's in a motorcycle with his brother on the way to the zoo. Didn't believe in it. Then he believed in it. I did not, I had not exactly, exactly, I, I, he's so precise. I did not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. It was, this is beautiful. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless on the bed, becomes aware that he's now awake. He likens becoming a Christian as being asleep and then awake to joy, right? Now, remember I told you about his views of the Reformation? You read his stuff on the Reformation early on. He doesn't say a lot of good things about the Reformation. But you got to give people time to grow in sanctification. And you, go, you read this 20 years later when he wrote this joker of a book, this, is, this, was his, this was his academic project his whole adult life, right here. Got a great title. English Literature in the 16th Century, Including Drama. <laughs> Beautiful, right? Who, who's, who's getting this thing, right? This is our book giveaway for this morning, no. <laughs> it, it, was in, it was in a series of books called The Oxford History of the English Language, and Lewis called it his Oh Hell volume. That was literally what he said. 
And here, here's the point. In this book, he writes about the Reformation. And this is what he says. 20 years after meeting Jesus, listen to how he describes salvation by grace. It's a long quote, but it's amazing. He's talking about a man who's been converted by grace. The man who has passed through the catastrophe of conversion feels like one who has what? Awaken. Here it is. Awaken from nightmare into ecstasy. Like an accepted lover, he feels that he's done nothing and never could have done anything to deserve such astonishing happiness. All the initiatives have been on God's side. All God's side. All has been free, unbounded grace and will continue to be free, unbounded grace. His own puny, ridiculous efforts would be helpless to retain the joy as if they would have been to achieve it in the first place. Fortunately, they need not. Bliss is not for sale, cannot be earned. Works have no merit, though of course faith inevitably, even unconsciously flows out into works of love at once. He is not saved because he does works of love. He does works of love because he is saved. It is faith alone, sola fide, that has saved him. Faith bestowed by sheer gift. From this buoyant humility, this farewell to the self with all its good resolutions, anxiety, scruples, and motive scratchings. I love that. I got to use that in a sermon next time. Motive scratchings. All the Protestant doctrines originally sprang. For it must be clearly understood that they were at first, here's the point, First, doctrines not of terror, but of joy and hope. Indeed, more than hope, fruition. For as Tyndall says, the converted man is already tasting eternal life. Now that, that's my theology. <laughs> I hope that's your theology. If you're a Protestant, that's beautiful. So, as a lifelong Anglican, he became the voice of Christian witness in England. He was where people went to ask about Christianity. Even though he wasn't a pastor, he was a churchman. He was a faithful, regular church member in the Church of England. And he was a literature professor. And those broadcast talks, I told you, that's, that's mere Christianity. So after 30 years, he takes a professorship at Cambridge. He marries Joy Davidman. Late in his life, they were married for a few years. Uh, they, were, they, they got married, and then a, four years later, she passed away from cancer. And then at age 65, Lewis passes away on November 22nd, 1963. Who, who else died on that day? Yeah. yeah, JFK. There you go. Mr. Cushman, uh, Aldous Huxley. It would be an interesting an interesting thing to talk about those, those three men, right, and what they believed and, and how they thought about the eternity that they slipped into on November 22nd, 1963. So I'm going to stop there. Oh, actually, let me give you some pictures real quick. So if you ever go to Oxford, you take a 25-minute bus ride down the road to the Kilns, which is his home where Lewis lived. Uh, he wrote all those Narnia stories in that room right there. Uh, I met this... I met this uh, rascal when I was there. Look at this guy. What is he doing? He's got like, a, got, like an, got like an afro. Look at this. I'm not sure about that. 
Um, and when I went to his, his, his tombstone, here's his tombstone, I wept. This was 2008. I wept tears of gratitude. Not because I think C.S. Lewis is perfect. He's not. But because of the gift that he, is, he has been in my life. Uh, a gift that I think Jesus has given to his church. In all of his problems and all of his errors, he gets things, the things that he gets right, it's hard to find anybody else who's writer on those things. And so I'm thankful to God for him. So let me stop there. Before we talk about how to imitate his faith and before we get into story time, uh, any questions, comments, thoughts about Lewis, about his theology, about his life, about his testimony? Yes, sir. Yeah, it's a good question. So when did he start writing those, that, that theology? So the first book he wrote after his conversion was this book. Uh, sorry, I need more. I get more notes up here. than uh, It's called the, the Pilgrim's Regress. And here's, here's, here's amazing. Right at his conversion, it's called an, allegoric, an allegorical apology for Christianity, for reason, and for romanticism. In other words, those three things, if you get those three things, you get Lewis. His love for Christ, his love for story, that's what romanticism is, and his love for reason. He's the most logical writer you ever read. And so to answer your question, yes, it's, it's after his conversion when he starts writing all of this, uh, all the literary output that we think of, of miracles, right, uh, 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 mere Christianity. Um, so you're, you're exactly right. That, the, the, that conversion, post-conversion is where we get all of his Christian apologetics. Uh, he wrote tons of liter literary stuff, but not Christian, Christianity stuff. And you have to remember, because he's studying uh, English literature in the 16th century, which is the 1500s, right? The Protestant Reformation is happening, right? And so he is having to read a lot of stuff that's theological, without necessarily being a Christian. Yeah. Yeah, good question. I had a theological question. Yep. Um, not to get too far into the weeds, but like so I, I mentioned some of this earlier. So uh, when you read, especially some of his early stuff, uh, there's a book called Reflections on the Psalms, right? And he has wonderful things in it to talk about how joy points us to joy in God. In fact, it's one of, if you've ever read anything by John Piper, it, that is one of the books that changed John Piper's life, right? And yet in the same book, in the same book, Reflections on the Psalms, he says things about scripture uh, that... I just, that would barely be what we would understand as, as evangelical. And again, I think that part of where, so his view of scripture, he, he, he thinks it's absolutely authoritative, but he doesn't think it's inerrant. Uh, there are other depictions in his books where he holds out at least the hope that imperfect depictions of Christ and other religions can lead people to Christ. And like I said, Part of this is, some people will say, well, he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't teaching people from the word of God every week. 
Um, and I think that's, that's true. But I think another caveat I would just want to give is giving him time to grow. Because what in my reading of Lewis, he gets more conservative as the years go by. In fact, he's, I think he's more thoroughgoingly Protestant in his views towards the end of his life as he is in the beginning. So those would be two examples. Yeah. Yes, sir. Sam. Yeah. The weight of glory. Yeah. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah, so you can find Weight of Glory on the internet or you can buy the, the little collection called The Weight of Glory. Very impactful. Any other, any other questions, comments about Lewis? Yes. Um, this is, if you want a good biography of Lewis, uh, there's a book called The Narnian by a, a good guy down at Baylor, uh, Alan Jacobs. So if, you, if you're interested in reading a uh, one-volume biography of Lewis, The Narnian, really well done. Really appreciate it. Um, okay, let's do this. I'm going to give you two quick applications, and then we're going to jump into story time, all right? Because that's really, I want to talk about Aslan. That's really what I want to talk about, because friend named Aslan. Okay, so imitate their faith. What, what do you get from Lewis? Um, I think Lewis is a better evangelist than anyone in this room. Lewis devoted his whole adult life. He, 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 got, he got criticized by theologians and pastors and said, well, listen, you're not, you're not explaining this correctly. You need to talk more about this or talk more about this. And Lewis said, basically, I'm a literature professor if you were doing your job, I wouldn't be asked to do this stuff. In other words, my way of doing it is better. My way of doing evangelism is better than your way of not doing it. So, so Lewis has an evangelistic zeal that I want to imitate. Okay, we love the Narnia books. Do you realize he took his apologetics and put them in the Narnia books? You read the line in the Wish in the Wardrobe and you get... You get arguments for apologetics for Christianity in the Narnia books. I mean, the whole liar, lunatic, Lord argument is in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. If you've ever taken a first semester psychology class and you hear about Freud and Furbach and that God is the projection of the dad we never had in the heavens. And, you know, we're just, we just, it's wish fulfillment to think that, you know, we grow up and our dad's not perfect. We find out he's not as strong as we thought. He's not as nice as we know. He's got errors. He's got mistakes. And you, and you don't, all of a sudden you're looking for a father figure. So you project that image of a dad into the sky and you have God, our father. You ever heard that argument? argument that he gives you arguments against that in the silver chair it's 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 right there he's weaving christian apologetics into the stories for your kids you try to do that it's hard to do 
So what is he doing that's great? He teaches us to seek to help others discover that the inconsolable longing, that piercing stab, that eternity that's set in the heart of man, as Ecclesiastes put it, it's just an echo of Eden. It's a pointer to Christ, and it's a pointer to the hope of the world to come. He said, he said another place that the sweetest thing of all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. And then here's a great quote. It's in one of his, another one of his uh, books. He says, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that has been, in my experience, one of the greatest helps of Lewis is to talk to unbelievers about those longings and desires that they have and, and say to them, that's not the point. They're pointing to the reality. You were made for God. That's why you have these longings that aren't met with all the other countless things you're trying to satisfy your life with. Money and sex and ambition, none of those will ultimately satisfy. And so that's what Lewis can help us with. Uh, here's a long, great quote. Uh, I'll read it. Okay. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so, the secret which pierces with such sweetness, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it desires of something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because of our own experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if we mistaken if, we, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. And then he puts it like this. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we've not heard. News from a country we've never yet visited. And the last thing I would say that Lewis teaches us is to Seek to enjoy Christ in all things and to enjoy all things in relation to Christ, the one who holds all things together. So to that end, uh, to that end, I want to tell you a little bit from, uh, from the Narnia books about my friend Aslan. And I hope you know Aslan and I hope you love Aslan. First of all, Aslan, if you don't know the stories, he's the Lion King of a world called Narnia. And in the first book, the, line, the first book, for those, for those of you who know the, the ordering debate in Narnia books, in the first book, amen, amen, amen. Okay, if you don't know about this, we're just moving on. Here we go. In the first book of The Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe, these kids have heard about Aslan, the king, from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And again, Aslan is an allegory about Christ. So what, what do we learn about Aslan? First, uh, Aslan's not a safe lion, but he's good. 
It's no good, son of Adam, Mr. Beaver said. No, sorry, if you want all these, these quotes, I didn't put them in the PowerPoint. They're on that little QR code. If you click on the QR code, you can find all the quotes uh, under the little link called Narnia Quotes. All right. It's no good, son of Adam. No good trying of all people. But now Aslan is on the move. Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, they said. Who is Aslan? Aslan, Mr. Beaver said, you don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole woods. But he's not often here, you understand, never in my time or my father's time. But word has reached us that Aslan has come back. He's in Narnia in this moment. He'll settle that white queen all, all right. He's, it's he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Well, he goes on to say, will, 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 she, will, will the, the white queen, will she not turn Aslan into stone? Lord, love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most that she can do and more than I expect of her. No, he'll put all to rights, as it says, when he comes. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. We're going to see him? Well, of course you're going to see him. Why do you think he was, he, you were brought here for? What do you think you were brought here for? I'm going to lead you there and you're going you're gonna to meet him. Is he, Lucy says, is he a man? Aslan a man? Certainly not. He's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king, he's the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. He's a great lion, the great lion. Oh, I thought he was a man, said Susan. Is he quite safe? I shall ver feel very nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, no mistake. Anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're silly in the head. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver's telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You're thinking, when they actually meet him, this is what, this is what happens. That's the first thing. Aslan's not safe. He's good. Second thing, the name of Aslan's holy. They say Aslan is on, this is the line which the wardrobe. They say Aslan's on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment, the moment Mr. Beaver had spoken these words, they felt different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand in the dream, though it feels as if it was, had some enormous meaning. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside them. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by. And Lu this is the best part. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. That's what, they, that's what they experience when they hear the name of Aslan. 
When people hear the name of Christ, some will revolt in horror, and some, when they hear his name, it is more precious than waking up, and it's the first day of summer. Sanctification. What has Lewis taught me about sanctification in Narnia? Aslan, dear Aslan, this is uh, Lucy talking. Aslan at last, this is from Prince Caspian. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell half sitting and half lying between his paws. And he bent forward and touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her and she gazed up into his large wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, Lucy said, you're bigger. This is because you are older, little one, he answered. Not because you are. I am not, Aslan says. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Brothers and sisters, that's sanctification. The more you spend time walking with Jesus, you grow but Jesus doesn't stay the same. We get bigger and he gets bigger. <laughs> we begin to see more and more of his glory and grace as we get to know him. Um, let me read one more or two more, all right? Aslan, uh, in, the, uh, in the, the line in which in the wardrobe, Aslan dies for traitors, which is beautiful. But let me, get, anybody remember the story, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? There's a, a boy with an unfortunate name, Eustace Scrub. Anybody remember Eustace Scrub? He was a terrible boy. He was, his parents were bad. He was bad. And in, in the story, Eustace Scrub, he lays down and he has dragonish thoughts. He has evil thoughts. And when he wakes up in Narnia, he's become a dragon. Not good, right? And so... The story goes, he tries to get the dragon skin off of him. He doesn't want to be a dragon anymore because everywhere he goes, people are afraid of him and they run from him. So he, he tries to get the dragon skin off and he, he tears the skin of the dragon off of him and guess what's underneath that dragon skin? More skin. And every time he sheds the dragon skin, it just more grows back. And he's hopeless. He can't get the dragon skin off. Then he meets Aslan. And this is what he says. The first, Aslan gets his paw with a sharp claw on it and nails him with it. The first tear Aslan made was so deep, I thought he had gone right into my heart. When he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling that stuff pilled off. And then Edmund says, I know exactly what you mean. And then he says, he peeled all the stuff off, just as I thought I had done myself, but it hadn't hurt when I had done it. And there I was, there it was, lying in the grass, as much thicker and darker and knobbly looking as others had been. And I was as smooth, as soft, and as, peel, and as peeled. He peeled it all away. And it says, then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much because I was tender. And he threw me in the water. <laughs> in other words, Aslis gave him a new heart, and then he got baptized. I think he was a Baptist, amen? 
Sounds like baptism to me, amen? I love this part, though. He threw me in the water. It hurt like anything. But then it became perfectly delicious. And I started swimming and splashing around. And I felt that all the pain had gone away. And then I figured out why. I had turned into a boy again. The only way we can be undragoned is not through efforts. It's not through trying harder. It's through the piercing heart, piercing claw of Aslan, the great king. He's the only one who can make us human again. And then you get baptized, amen. We're gonna keep going. We're almost done. What time is it? Great, Scott, I got two minutes left. All right. Uh, I got two more. Actually, you know what? Mm, you can read these other ones. I'll, I'll do these last two. One of the great stories in The Magician's Nephew, there's this little boy named Diggory. Um, if you know that story, you know that when he finally ends up in Narnia, he discovers that it was his mistakes that led to basically sin entering the world in Narnia and causing all the problems in Narnia. And so he feels devastated about it. The other reason he's devastated is his mom back home in, in Earth, on Earth is dying. His father's away in the war in India and his mother's on his deathbed, her, her deathbed, and he's living with a crazy uncle. And he's a nine-year-old boy. Sounds similar, doesn't it? And more than anything in all the world, he just wants his mom to feel better, to get well. But he knows he's messed everything up. So hoping against hope, he goes and tells Aslan, he gives one request, and this is the request. He says this, he thought, he said yes, at Diggory said, and then he said, sorry, I'm gonna get the quote right. He says yes, and he thought of his mother, and tears came into this little boy's eyes, and a lump in his throat, and he blurts out to Aslan, but please, 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 Aslan, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his dis despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For in the tawny face of the lion was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big bright tears compared with Diggory's own tears that for a moment Diggory felt as if the lion must be really sorrier about his mom than he was. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know that grief is great and only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. And then you know the rest of the story. When he goes on the quest that Aslan sends him on, there's a moment of temptation where he has to choose and make a decision. Am I gonna obey Aslan or am I gonna obey what I want? And at that moment of decision, the thing that keeps him on the path of obedience is the love of Aslan 
expressed in those tears. What is, what's Lewis teaching us? Aslan is a lion of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we follow Jesus in as far as we grow deeper in the love of Christ, knowing his sacrificial love for us, knowing that he's a sympathetic high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, knowing that he's a man of sorrows. That love that he has for us keeps us on a path of obedience. Last quote, and I'll be done. The very last book of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is called The Last Battle. And given how literary Lewis is, this is a fitting way to end his stories. He says this, and this is teaching us that Aslan's making all things new. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning, says Aslan. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. And all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had been only the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were at the beginning. Chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's beautiful. Any questions, comments, thoughts about the Lion King from, from, from Narnia or anything else about Lewis before we close in prayer? Yes, sir. Yeah, so great question. Um, if you... If you want to read science fiction, in particular, if you want to read a book that is prophetic about the current technological atheism that we face in this world, read the third part of the Space Trilogy. Um, it's incredible. Yeah, so it's, he, again, it's, he puts all of his apologetics in everything he writes. And so I, I've enjoyed them. I'm, uh, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Great question. Yep. Anything else? Yes, sir. Yeah, I would say read screw tape letters because it will teach you about temptation. It'll again, it's a, it's an odd thing to read to be talking to reading a book about two a demon talking to another demon, but the subtlety and the depth of spiritual insight in that book are worth the price of the book. Yeah. And I would also just say, read the Narnia books. If you, have, if you have kids or grandkids, read them to them. They'll love them. Oh, yes. What order? The correct order. Start with the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. All right, let me pray for us. Thank you all for letting me uh, indulge in, uh, in, in this. It, if it didn't work out well, that's okay. We can, we can do this again in a few years. Let's pray.